Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred texts with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hi, everyone. We're so glad to be back on the podcast with you all. We're here today for the book of Isaiah, chapters 50 through 57, for the dates September 26th through October 2nd. Thank you so much for being patient with us as we are working on a new episode release while Channing and I took a little bit of time to have a self-care break so that we could adjust to the new school year and the new season and trying to find our groove. But we've really, really missed you and we've really missed being a part of the podcast. And honestly, we are very sorry for leaving you hanging for so long, especially when we were really hyping up our episode about the Song of Solomon that we promised, but we are extra, extra appreciative for your understanding that we couldn't make that happen. We are looking forward to diving into Isaiah with you, and we're hopeful that today's episode is going to be explorative, informative, and fun. So welcome back to the podcast. Yes, and welcome to Isaiah. So one of the first questions that we wanted to ask before we dive into the book of Isaiah is one that we've been asking every single time we come across a new book in the Hebrew Bible. So what is Isaiah and who is Isaiah? Isaiah is a part of the section of the Hebrew Bible known as the Nevi'im, which is the section containing um, writings of the prophets. Isaiah is one of the most prominent books in this section, and the name Isaiah translates to God is salvation. So now that we kind of understand what the book of Isaiah does or how it functions in the Hebrew Bible, we also get to ask the question, who is Isaiah? And this little tidbit of information comes from the Bible Archaeological Society website. They write, quote, but who was Isaiah? Modern scholars have deduced there were more than one, most likely three writers under the single name Isaiah, end quote. And these handful of authors were believed to have lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So just so we can orient ourselves in the text, kind of understand where we are historically and like chronologically as we've moved through the Hebrew Bible. We know that our listeners have probably been in the book of Isaiah for a little bit longer um, before we did this podcast, so maybe this information is new to you, but maybe it's not. For this week's chapters, Isaiah 50 through 57, we really focus in on the messianic poetry section, which, which focuses on highlighting characteristics and experiences of the Messiah. One of the things that has felt really important as we've moved through the Hebrew Bible is to make sure 
that we understand the Jewish perspective of what's happening in the Bible, as well as the Christian perspective. And particularly when it comes to the Messiah, this is one really big deviation point between Christian perspective and Jewish perspective. The Jewish tradition doesn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So one of the questions that we might ask the text or we might ask before we arrive to the text is what do Jews believe about Jesus? And the following quote comes from the My Jewish Learning website. They write, quote, For some Jews, the name Jesus alone is nearly synonymous with pogroms and crusades, charges of deicide, and centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. So in summary, for a lot of Jewish people, the name Jesus really functions as a reminder of all of the oppression that they've experienced because of what is written in the New Testament. The My Jewish Learning website continues saying, quote, Other Jews recently have come to regard Jesus as a Jewish teacher. This does not mean, however, that they believe that he was raised from the dead or was the Messiah, end quote. So this feels really important to note as we move through Isaiah and read this book to note that for Jewish people, the Messiah hasn't come yet. And for Christian readers, we're going to read, we're going to read Jesus into, into the text. So just so that we can provide some nuance to perspectives as we move through today um, and maybe hold space for multiple perspectives. I think that's some really important context to set, especially because in the Come Follow Me manual, there is a lot of emphasis this week on Jesus. And the overwhel- I think one thing that we're really familiar with is the overwhelming majority of talks and lessons and writings about Jesus in the LDS t- context that focus on, they focus really heavily on the atonement and suffering of Jesus Christ. Sometimes attention is paid to the miracles Jesus performed during his ministry, but rarely, if ever, is there any discussion, especially at the church level, about the radical politics of Jesus. Jesus loudly critiqued the dominant social, political, and religious order, traveling from town to town, city to city, to invoke a collective shift toward healthy communities. We see Jesus envisioning a people who were free, free from their roles of oppressed and oppressor, free from hatred, free from systems that harm, exploit, and grind the body and soul to dust. That being said, when we turn to Isaiah chapter 53, I think that we are kind of seeing something different than what we're used to seeing. Yes, we see the suffering of, we see like the suffering Jesus here that we were just critiquing. Now, Jesus's suffering doesn't go away. And I think when we are, and I think when we remind ourselves about the truly radical socialist and like uh, liberated person that Jesus was, then that brings a whole new understanding and meaning to what we see in Isaiah 53, which feels like the suffering Jesus. For example, it says things like Jesus was despised and rejected of men, of men, a man of sorrows, someone who is acquainted with grief. And sometimes the church culture makes it seem like Jesus would have been this really popular guy that like everyone loved and immediately recognized as the good old savior. But what I like about Isaiah 53 is that it reminds us that we, like you and I and everyone listening, would have also probably rejected Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard, I think for me, that's like a hard mirror to hold up to myself. The rest of the verses three and four say things like, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten, of God and afflicted. Ouch! Like, we would have most likely hidden our faces from this Jesus, this radical Jesus that doesn't get a lot of attention in the LDS context. It's hard for us to take a look and realize that perhaps we would not have been ready for such a radical prophet. What happens if we would have been those same people to have looked down on him and written him off? Oh, that's such a good question. And it really makes me think of all of the ways that I currently do this and miss the chance to see the face of God in those around me. I might ask myself questions like, who do I despise even unconsciously and why? Who do I think of as stricken and afflicted and yet unworthy to be esteemed or recognized? What messages have I absorbed around which kinds of people are or are not worthy of my attention, time, and care? We also see in chapter 53, verse 7, really standing out to us because it makes us think of how the story would be different if we considered that Jesus maybe didn't want to come to earth to be crucified for the sins of the world. We also see in chapter 53, verse 7, really standing out to us because it makes us think of how the story might be different if we considered that Jesus perhaps didn't want to come to earth to be crucified for the sins of the world. That's a really big job and one that ends in a brutal, violent death. It's a job that dismisses Jesus, the man, and uses him as a necessary means to an end. Perhaps this is too harshly stated, but verse 7 makes us think of a slaughter in which Jesus did not want to participate. We read, quote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, end quote. Something else that stuck out to us as we were reading about the characteristics of the Messiah in these chapters were that we could pick out specific characteristics that we could embody as emulators of Christ right now, today. And I got really excited about some of these examples. We read in chapter 54, verses 4 through 5, quote, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He, the Lord, wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. End quote. And from this verse, we can really see a couple of characteristics shining through. We see a wisdom in the willingness to learn, a willingness to soften and accept instruction from the Lord. And we also see a willingness, a bravery, a courage to speak, and the wisdom to know what to say and the right time to say it. In the same chapter, in verses 6 through 7, we also read, quote, I gave my backs to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded? There I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed, end quote. And I really was struck reading these verses, especially thinking about my responsibility and my privilege as someone who holds white privilege and understanding that I can emulate some of these characteristics of Jesus as well. 
recognizing the importance of giving my backs to the smiters and not hiding my face from shame and from spitting and taking on those responsibilities to stand up for things that are important, to use my privilege and to spend my privilege. And I felt like this was a really important way of reading this verse um, to know that I can stand up for my beliefs and stand up for things that are important to me, even in the face of contention. And finally, in chapter 51, verses 11 through 12, we come across a handful more of these really radical characteristics of the Messiah. These verses read, quote, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he that comforteth you, unquote. And these verses really illustrate hope, optimism, faith, joy, celebration. And these are all, these are, these are radical characteristics too. The willingness to embrace these lighter and um, really human emotions of being able to say, even in the face of great sorrow and even in the face of challenge, I can have hope. I can face the future and I can sing and dance and um, embrace all of the joy that this life still has for me. You know how I feel about joy and celebration and love and even a little bit of utopia. Those are the things that really make me excited. And I also saw some similar echoes in chapter 56, which kind of speaks about the promises of Zion for those who keep the commandments. But I think even a step further than that, it also talks about it also talks about God in that chapter heading. It says God gathers others into the house of Israel. And we often hear talk of good people who keep the commandments that are supposed to like make it into Zion. But I think that this chapter goes out of its way to show that Zion and salvation will not just include all of the people that we expect to be there. Zion is also built on justice and includes strangers or people whom we might consider to be unfamiliar. This chapter lists a few groups of people who will be gathered into the extended house of God as if we've had to like expand the tent stakes of Zion or like build on new additions to the house of Zion to ensure that everyone has a room and food aplenty. So in the chapter, we first meet the son of the stranger, then we meet the eunuchs and finally the outcasts, all of which to whom God makes a huge promise. Verse 5 says, Unto them, the stranger, the eunuchs, and the outcasts, will I, God, give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Verse 7 continues, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And with these verses, I mean, perhaps my idea about like building on an extended addition to the house isn't even the best image that we could be working with here because it seems that in these verses, God is making it really clear that God is going out of their way to ensure that the outcasts and the strangers are given the best of the best, even better than the sons and the daughters whom we expect to be like considered in God's covenant. And to me, this sounds like a really great example of the last shall be first. Those whom we disregard, push aside, and pay no attention to are actually those whom God will seek out individually 
and take them on a personalized tour of all of the holiest places, and God will build them a house better than we could imagine. I don't know what sounds more like liberation and justice than that. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I'm so I'm so glad that you mentioned liberation and justice because that was one thing that also really stuck out to me as well, um, especially in chapter 52. In this chapter, I found it really fascinating because we learn in this chapter that one of the names of God is liberation. So hear me out. In chapter 52, verses 4 through 5, we read, quote, My people went down into Egypt to sojourn there. And they oppress them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught, that they, the Egyptians, rule over them to make them howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed, end quote. And this verse can be read one of two ways. We can read it either the first way, which is that while the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians, their oppressors perhaps like actively blasphemed the name of God, maybe by verbally mocking God or destroying sacred symbolisms or holy places. But the second way that we can read this verse could also be understood in that the act of oppression itself mocks God. That harm, injustice, violence, enslavement, prejudice, and hatred afflicted upon another is actively mocking God. In verse 52, verse 6, we hear the Lord speaking, saying, Therefore, my people shall know my name. They shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. End quote. So what is God's name? We find out in the next three verses, chapter 52, verses 7 through 9, quote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem, end quote. So as we're reading this verse, we might ask, is Isaiah referencing the past, referencing the time when the Lord freed the Israelites from Egypt as referenced in prior verses and chapters, or is Isaiah speaking prophetically about the future? I think in this case, perhaps Isaiah is doing both, relying on the past to inform the present, as if to say, God has liberated before and God will liberate again. It was impossible then, and if it's impossible now, God will see it done. The good tidings, the publishment, is peace. There can be no peace when there is oppression. Peace requires liberation, a radical change that seems impossible but is ultimately redemptive and comforting. We see this liberation come to fruition in as the chapters continue to develop, and we come across a couple of verses in chapter 54 that really stuck out to me. And I hope you'll allow me a little bit of like wordplay and replacement um, for this verse. I just love the way that it reads with just a couple of changes, um, but it it's just so, so beautiful. So, so staying true to the heart of the text, but with a little bit of play. In chapter 54, verses 11 through 14, we read, quote, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy foundations with sapphires. Your windows will be made of agates, and all your borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of liberation, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In right relationship shall thou be established. 
thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and you will be free from terror, for it shall not come near you, end quote. And I, I just love the way that the text kind of follows this, this pattern or this pathway through and out of oppression to liberation. And this final verse really kind of seems to wrap everything up in saying, with God almost saying to the Israelites, look, your heritage is, is liberation, it's freedom, it's love. Yes, heritage. I'm so glad that you brought that up because if we look in chapter 54, the word heritage appears at the very end of the chapter. And in this chapter, it's kind of the same verses that you were citing here. We spend time continuing to dream of Zion with a large tent big enough to hold everyone. And Zion will be gathered in mercy and tenderness and paved with beautiful stones and crystals like you talked about. And after this entire sketch, the chapter ends with the line, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And I like the interpretation that you just offered, that liberation is the heritage of the Israelites. And I'm really struck by the word heritage here because it seems like within the context of this chapter, it means inheritance, right? Like everyone who serves God will inherit this like crystal lined Zion. Mm -hmm. But we could also consider heritage as something that is passed down ancestrally. And in this light, I'm considering my own personal and cultural heritage. So like as someone who grew up in the church, what does that mean for my cultural heritage? And like, guess what? I, I don't just like only get to inherit the air quotes, good, shiny things like testimony meetings and shared potlucks and Jesus. A large part of my Mormon heritage is also built on white supremacy, ableism, homophobia, patriarchy, and colonization. And I think the same could be said for my own family's historical heritage. I didn't just inherit like a good taste in music and decor. It's also a complex heritage of colonized colonizer relationships and abuses of power. And I know that one of the things that Channing and our friend Bergen have spent a lot of time thinking about, well, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this very thing, this ancestral heritage and how it's really complicated and complex, especially mm -hmm. as you've been working on the Nourishing Kin events. So I just wanted to see if maybe you had some things that you could share with us that you've, no that you've noticed or learned regarding like white supremacy, whiteness, and maybe a complicated heritage as you've gathered with other groups of people to like look back at ancestral traditions or ancestral heritage to create a heritage of liberation. Oh, that's such a gorgeous question. And this is something that I feel really passionate and really excited about talking about because you're absolutely right, especially for people who are of European descendant or participate in white supremacy and benefit and benefit from the system of white supremacy. It's really difficult to look back at your family's history and recognize like, wow, I and my family are part of the problem. And it can be really easy to get stuck there. Um, during these events and these gatherings, we spend a lot of time working through that grief, that confusion, that shame, that fear by recognizing our own complex um, heritage of all of the ways that our our European ancestors were also colonized and Christianized as a as a method of, of colonization and domination. And there, there's so much potent feeling and connection that can happen over 
over those issues and really offering space to work through them and understand them in all of the nuanced complexity that's really there. But I think that there's a real risk that we run when we sink so deeply into our ancestral grief and we say, oh no. And when we see and we recognize, oh no, I and my ancestors are part of the problem. It's easy to get stuck in that loop over and over again. I'm, I'm the problem. I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. And sometimes what we forget is the other side of the coin. If I'm the problem or if I'm a part of the problem, then I'm also a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And the solution happens when we begin to the solution begins to come when we divest from harmful and oppressive systems. So we kind of take a really broad approach during these gatherings and look at how can I right here, right now in my lived experience, in my lived, limited community with my limited capacity, how can I be an agent for change? Where am I feeling most called to? If I'm part of the problem, then how do I want to be a part of the solution? So for some folks, that really means like, okay, I'm going to lean into my community and lean away from individualism. For other folks, that really looks like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look really deeply into my ancestral heritage and my ancestral spiritual traditions so that I can not culturally appropriate from other cultures that are, are not mine and maybe have been harmed and exploited over the years as colonization continues. And with that comes the realization that as people who can identify as white colonial settlers, that we also have a responsibility to educate ourselves and learn about the indigenous people, the land, the spirituality of the land, and what it means to come back into right relationship with all of the human beings and other human beings in our community. And that is a long and arduous and difficult process that reaps so many rewards. And those rewards are connection and care and community. And so it's an ongoing project. It's an ongoing effort. But right now we're just planting the seeds and planting the seeds is part of recognizing that there's a lot of growth and discomfort, but there's a lot of reward at the end of it. So yeah, it's good. Oh, it's good. That. I'm so glad that you shared that. Thank you. And I think this discussion makes me consider what type of heritage I want my community and maybe my like communal kin to inherit from me or from us. Like, do we want to pass down racism, environmental destruction, and intolerance? Or what are we doing now to pass down a heritage that isn't afraid to take accountability for the past, a heritage that makes amends and repair for the present, and a heritage that shapes a hopeful path toward a liberated future? Yes, those are such powerful questions, and I'm really excited that we get to ask them, especially in the context of heritage and inheritance and what it means to belong to the house of the Lord and belong to the people who are continually striving or trying to be in right relationship with their beliefs and with their community. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. We're really excited that we got to share this time with you, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. A small P.S., a big shout out and special thank you to our volunteer transcribers who work on the transcriptions, Heather, Sarah, and Mary. We love you so much. Thank you for all that you do. You're the best. 
Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.